Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a wandering teacher. Joining me is Liz, a wandering vice principal. No hiking without a hall pass. And joining us, brand new to this show and this series, Spell. Hello, I am Spell, or if you'd like to say spell anything. <laughs> this is my first time reading anything in this series, and I'm incredibly excited to share my thoughts on it. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Our book of this month is The We Free Men, the story that asks, what if we didn't end the witches series? Let's dive right in. Just first impressions. I had no idea what to expect. Um, I, I knew of Discworld it, beforehand but i had never like read anything of it or even gotten a really in-depth thing um the closest thing to an education on it i had was uh some sparse internet posts so i had absolutely no idea what to expect and well you can say that it uh impressed me because i had a wonderful time reading this lovely i had some ideas based on the previous discworld books but weird thing I'm pretty sure I've read this book before. Really? Yeah. I think I read it when I was a kid. Oh, wow. It must have had a weird surprise. Yeah, I was like getting into it and I got to like the end of the first chapter and I was like, wait a second, a lot of this is like super familiar. And the further I've gotten in, the more sure I am because I'm pretty sure I built a diorama for it for extra credit. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's great, like, um, having now the perspective of reading it as a kid and now reading it as an adult, I am very clear that the younger me did not get a lot of it, <laughs> but <laughs> adult me really enjoys it. All right, without further ado, let's dive on into the trivia section. Published in May 2003 and coming at 88,000 words, The We Free Men is the 30th Discworld novel and the second one written for a younger audience. The original working title was For Fear of Little Men, a reference to William Allingham's poem The Fairies. The titular We Free Men are primarily a parody of the Smurfs, incorporating stereotypes of Scottish people. One highlight is the title of Gonagle, which is a reference to William Topaz McGonagall, a famously bad Scottish poet, here exaggerated into music and verse bad enough to serve as weaponry. The war cry of Nay King, Nay Queen, Nay laird, nay master, we will nay be fooled again, combines the anarchist slogan, no gods, no masters, with the title of the Who song, won't get fooled again. Fan consensus is that the region known as the Chalk is inspired by the Wiltshire region of England, where Terry Pratchett was born, although he denied that this was intentional. Also apparently unintentional was the use of the name Roland, which fans assumed was referencing a ballad in which a boy named Roland rescues his sister from the King of Elfland. The illustration in the book of fairy tales is inspired by the painting The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke by Richard Dodd, and the last line of the book spoofs the Christian prayer Gloria Patri by removing the R from the phrase world without end, since wold is a term common in England for uncultivated hilly terrain. The We Free Men has been translated into over a dozen languages over a hundred editions, including the 2008 illustrated edition with art by Stephen Player. Uh, the audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts seven hours and ten minutes, with an abridged version read by Tony Robinson docking in at three and a half hours. In 2006, Sony Pictures acquired the rights to produce a movie adaptation, signing Sam Raimi as director, but the production fell through. Rihanna Pratchett announced in 2013 that a new adaptation was in the works with the Jim Henson Company, but there have been a few updates since then. As for the book itself, among several other accolades, it won the 2004 Locus YA Award, the 2008 Geffen Award, and not counting Good Omens, it was the only Terry Pratchett novel featured on Time Magazine's 2020 list of the 100 best fantasy books of all time. Not bad. I think that's probably the most like awarded we've seen from a Discord book so far. Yeah, it's like quite a pedigree. The story begins with a witch named Miss Tick as she notices a distortion in reality, which is a pretty big deal when your reality is as flimsy as it is on the Discworld. Mystic realizes that the distortions are centered on a specific region known as, and largely composed of, the Chalk. Whatever is causing it shouldn't be a problem, since Mystic deciphers that the Chalk already has a resident witch, but she's also worried 
because witches tend to thrive on more rocky terrain. Before we get to our main character, I want to talk about the chalk and the way that Mystic says you can't grow witches on soft ground. I found it fascinating in that I was also just incredibly confused. I was like, where where does the magic come from? Especially, this is my first Discord book. <laughs> where does the magic come from? Is it like, does it travel better through harder stone? Um, are they using ley lines? That kind of a thing. I It was just a fascinating little touch that really caught my attention. I remember this is one of those details that really sticks out to me from when I was a kid. And I didn't really have like any further context for it. Um, but now rereading the book and having the context of the Discworld at large, I think it is a really interesting world building detail, but it feels like something that's never really specifically been mentioned. And which makes me kind of want to know, like, was this always the case? Was this, was this a new idea? Like, I, I wish I had more details. Yeah, like, I'm sure someone will correct us if we're wrong, but I don't think the whole Rocky Terrain thing was mentioned in any previous book, many of which, Svel, have f focused on other witches, but those have been primarily in a mountainy country, so it hasn't come up, basically. Fascinating. Yeah, it's like the most similar thing to, you know, rocks and magic, and I'm going to put some air quotes around magic for the rest of the sentence, is um how... The druids, like, computer rocks and the trolls work, because those are literal rocks that are capable of doing computing. Oh yeah, uh, just spell, for context, on the Discworld trolls, they're basically living rocks with, like, a natural computer brain. That is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> that just has me thinking about all of the ramifications of, well, the place being made of chalk. <laughs> Ramifications, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> I'll see myself out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the rocky terrain thing, Mystic does briefly mention that, like, chalk is hungry land. It sort of eats up the magic a little bit. But ultimately, I think it's really more that just witches thrive with the kind of mental fortitude that you get from growing up in an area where life is harder, and that's more common in places with mountains and things. Yeah, I think that makes sense. We follow Miss Tick's gaze as she turns her attention towards the Witch of the Chalk, a nine-year-old girl named Tiffany Aching. She is babysitting her little brother, Wentworth, spending a quiet afternoon on the bank of the river near their family farm. But before too long, a tiny blue man comes sailing down the stream and gives Tiffany a partially comprehensible warning before she is attacked by a magical creature. It's interesting, the introduction we get to Tiffany, especially the way that she's thinking about the word Sussurus, which is one of Terry Pratchett's favorite words. <laughs> I, I also really like how we get like this vast difference between her and her younger brother just right off the bat, uh, where she has this like complex internal monologue about the definitions of words. This other kid is screaming about how he needs to use the bathroom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, Wentworth is, like, I want to say four. I think he might be three. I think that might be mentioned somewhere in the book, but I'm not 100%. But very, very young. <laughs> but it does do a really good job of setting up the differences between them and obviously how Tiffany feels about that situation. <laughs> yeah. After looking up the creature in her family's book of fairy tales, Tiffany brings her brother back to the river and uses him as bait to lure the creature back out before smacking it away with a frying pan. This impresses several more of the little blue men hidden in the bushes, and they determine that Tiffany must be what they call the hag. This was an interesting thing. Obviously, using your little brother, your baby brother as bait is, could fit certain definitions of heartless. Just a tad. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think Tiffany was clearly confident that she could handle it. Yeah, like dealing with a monster the way that she's doing here is obviously like quite a feat for somebody her age to be doing. But I also think it does kind of show a bit of, you know, kids that age do kind of tend to think they're invincible. And if they want to do something, they can just do that thing. And I, she got fortunate here that she was correct on that. But, you know, that could have gone very, very differently. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. I also like it sort of like it sets up for Mystic later being like, wow, 
that was, you know, some manner of awful creature. Not a, you'd have to be incredibly brave to do that. Um, there's no way that's real, and then it's real, and it continues to happen, if that makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> Although, like, we know that Mystic is currently watching Tiffany do this. She's scrying on her. Yeah. I think she probably, there was, like, testing to see how much Tiffany would just, like, write it off as just, like, oh, it was just, like... I must have fell asleep and daydreamed something or, you know, to see how hard she pushed back on it being the truth. Miss Tick is impressed with the girl's resourcefulness and determination. Deciding that the two of them should meet face to face, she joins a band of nomadic teachers as they make their way towards the town. Got the wandering teachers element. Maybe this is just me, but I was reminded of the Scholastic Book Fair. <laughs> Uh-huh. I remember that. It was my favorite thing as a kid. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. that was the best. <laughs> I, that probably explains why I'm now on a re- podcast recording about books, now that I think about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got you now. <laughs> yeah, that's just the training wheels for this. And I did look it up. They do have Scholastic Book Fairs in the UK, so it could be actually inspired by that. <laughs> Typewriter could have been aware of it, like, already, just from, like, the internet or whatever this was 2003 but you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh one can hope i don't know if i'm now kind of like building this retroactively or if i was just kind of misunderstanding the text while i was reading it but the description that pratchett gives of these wandering teachers very much makes it seems like they're wandering around and they're like graduation ropes (laughs) (laughs) I i don't think that was described but i believe it as do i (laughs) because <laughs> I think he does describe that they're wearing robes and so I think my brain just went there and was like yeah that seems like the appropriate attire for this <laughs> I mean like it is a medieval fantasy setting robes are a thing that people wear <laughs> yeah this makes a better like cartoon drawing in the picture book version of this <laughs> yeah absolutely Although, like, I will say I'm not the world's biggest fan of the use of referencing the old thing about those who can't do teach yeah that feels a bit outdated and that's kind of a i think mean-spirited thing to say especially as a writer (laughs) because like this book was intended for children and therefore potentially could be taught at school or in a school library right yeah very possibly like i don't know about taught in a school necessarily but could it would definitely be in like the library of an elementary or middle school i actually think i do remember that i think this book specifically was in my middle school library. I just never got around <laughs> to reading it. It's destiny. <laughs> so sure enough, Tiffany's search for more information about the creature from the river brings her to Miss Tick, as well as the witch's talking yellow toad. Miss Tick swiftly deromanticizes witchcraft for the girl, mentioning things like how chilly it can be on a broomstick. She also gets Tiffany to talk about her grandmother, the late Granny Aching. Before passing away two years ago, Granny Eking was not just the best shepherd on and beyond the chalk, but a woman who commanded absolute respect, even from the Baron. But about a year after Granny Eking passed away, the Baron's son disappeared. The villagers blamed an old woman named Mrs. Snapperly, called her a witch, killed her cat, and burned down her cottage. With a little prompting from Miss Tick, Tiffany reveals that she checked Mrs. Snapperly's cottage and she doesn't believe the woman was a witch. But aside from burying the cat, there was nothing Tiffany could do to help her. And when winter came, Mrs. Snapperly passed away. And even if she was just an old woman, the Baron declared that all witches should be dealt with by tying them up and throwing them in the pond. So that's a pretty heavy scene, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh... Oh, I thought this was kid. I cried a little. I, I will yeah. admit. I don't... Mm-hmm. <laughs> anything where an animal gets hurt, I will cry. Yeah. I think this scene does a really good job for somebody who does not necessarily have, like, the context of the rest of the Discworld of understanding, like, the role that Granny Aching plays in her community, which will be more relevant later. And what the absence of a witch can do you know how mean and cruel people can be if there's not somebody there to make sure that people are being taken care of and you know considering tiffany's age at this point 
you know, when you're that young and you see something that awful happen, that's something like you really internalize about how you see the world as right and wrong, I think. Definitely. Because, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that Tiffany gives for why she wants to be a witch. And, like, earlier on, I think it was mentioned that she resents how the characters are presented in the fairy tale book like the stupid princess or the uh, like noble hero girl and like and how there's no evidence given for why the witch is wicked necessarily but also she says here that she wants to make sure that what happened to mrs snapperly doesn't happen again it's a very compelling part of her character that she doesn't want to tolerate injustice yeah, and I think even though, you know, she's not the, like, warm and fuzziest character, but she still does care about things and cares a lot. I think, for me, the scene where we found out that she buried the cat was what really defined Tiffany's character for me, even. Because she must have been, what, it was two years ago, so she would have been seven years old, and she's burying... And I think it was a year ago, so... A year ago, right, sorry, two years ago since, since Granny Aiken passed away. But, like, an eight-year-old just digging a grave for someone else's pet because it's the right thing to do is just a really powerful mental image. Um, and I really think it sets the tone for how she acts in the future. Miss Tick tells Tiffany that there is something coming to the chalk. And once the girl is gone, she leaves to get help. However, the witch leaves her toad behind. Intentionally, she didn't just forget him. <laughs> <laughs> Although given how she tends to uh, treat the toad, you would probably be forgiven if you had assumed that she'd forgotten him. <laughs> that night, several of the little blue men, just like the one she saw in the river, creep around the aching house. Tiffany catches two of them stealing eggs from their chickens, and more stealing sheep from their pen, but she intimidates them into giving everything back, and even into helping her with her chores. And I wish I could be assisted with household tasks by a tiny Scottish blue man group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's definitely like a child's fantasy it's like oh i don't need to do my chores i have these like secret little people who just do them for me <laughs> i also i really love the way that like when she returns upstairs or like back to the house when she should be asleep she does a whole lying without actually lying thing wherein she states incredibly truthfully that like oh i was out going to check on you know the chickens um, which is true, it's just that the reasons behind it are incredibly misleading, and I love that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it, it's an interesting little character detail for, you know, what Tiffany thinks is okay. So, later that day, Tiffany heads back to the village and is menaced by a headless horseman. But, acting on the advice of another blue man, she stares him down until a small army of the little men leap out of the undergrowth. The horseman vanishes, and the little men scurry away. This scene is, like, pretty cool. I don't know how necessary it was. I didn't, I thought, I really thought that, like, this would be some sort of recurring threat, what with the incursion and whatnot. Uh, and it kind of is. There's three total instances of that happening. But you're right. <laughs> yeah, I think it does a really good job of adding tension and a threat of danger especially like real danger because you know a lot of kids books tend to sidestep any potential at like harm coming to the characters but this is like it's very clear that tiffany's like in a, a real spot i do think it probably could have been condensed with the slightly later section um but i do think it's effective if nothing else Back in town, Tiffany finds the Toad, who tells her that the Blue Men are called the Knack McFeagle. He also explains back at her house that the magical creatures are coming from a different universe, one that is colliding with that of the Discworld. As she gets this revelation, Tiffany's mother bursts into the room, because Wentworth has gone missing. I think this is like really where the plot starts to get going in this book, and you start to understand, like, oh, okay, this is the problem that needs to be fixed by the end of the book. Yeah. Because, uh, like, earlier on, I thought that, like, as they call themselves, the We Free Men were going to be, like, the central villains of the book. And then, 
when the conflict with them seemed to be resolved so early, I was very confused on where it, it would go from there. And this was the point where I sort of figured that part out. Interesting. Like, <laughs> I don't think I would have thought that the uh, they were the villains. Cause, probably just because, like, the Nakamik Fiegel, there are, like, a stereotype of, the, like, the violent Glaswegian, right? And, like, all stereotypes are harmful, but... Scottish is not really a, like, a trait you associate with villains, at least, as far as I'm aware. I do think the Nack MacFiegel do kind of touch on this old, like, universal cultural idea of, like, this, like, trickster spirit, kind of. Um, so I could see where, you know, you basically have a kid who thinks that they can use these trickster spirits thinking they know better um to get all the things they want done and then that gets like really out of control by the end of the book kind of like a cat in the hat situation yeah i can see that and there are like the stories of stuff like brownies and stuff like that where it's the helpful spirit that if you you know you mess one thing up they cease being helpful although i guess in this case it's kind of reversed yeah <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany joins in the search for her little brother, plagued by guilt about not loving him enough. Eventually, she asks the Toad how to get the Neck McFeagle to come talk with her, and the secret is soon revealed to be alcohol, because of course it is. <laughs> she speaks with one of the Feagles, who reluctantly introduces himself as Rob Anybody, and he tells her that the one behind all this can only be the Queen of the Elves. So the reason why Rob is reluctant to give his name is that the Feagles are terrified of lawyers and they are worried about being found guilty of any crimes they do, which is kind of weird because you think they could just break out of any prison. They don't seem to have like a lot of problem with that. Indeed. They just don't want to be punished, I guess. <laughs> they just want to avoid that step. You know, it's a real hassle. It gets in the <laughs> way of like the drinking and stuff. <laughs> I just, I love the the... I know it's it's fairly simple wordplay, but it speaks true to my heart with the uh, with Rob anybody's name. It's just very nice. May I go on a slight tangent? Absolutely. Okay, it reminds me of in one of the first uh, tabletop experiences that I played. Um, one of my players was a goblin named Scam Likely, and it just really <laughs> reminded me of that. Especially because the reason we came up with that name in the first place is because I got a phone call in the middle of doing character creation that was had the text Scam Likely from like the automated <laughs> iPhone whatevers. Scam Likely is a great name. Uh -huh. It is just a really good name. And it reminded me of that. So when the concept of the Queen of the Elves was introduced, Spell, what did you think about it? I got scared because, you know, Fey Royalty... I read the old stories, and the old stories generally, when you get you know taken by Fey royalty, it doesn't end well. No, it does not. So I really had no idea what to expect, uh, especially given like I had no idea what the tone was gonna be. I especially because I'm not again first novel in this series, and then it's also one of the ones specifically for kids. So I have no, I had no idea where like will this have a happy ending. Is, is Tiffany gonna get hurt? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Fairy Queen is a rare instance of it, the Discworld having a recurring villain. So, Liz, what did you think of her return? I was definitely very intrigued on how many similarities we were gonna get to see between that version of her and this version of her. And, well, I think at the core, especially how uh, Pratchett views like the fairy magic is very much the same, but it feels like this is definitely kind of a simplified version of her personality. Hmm. Well, now I'm just excited to see if we'll meet her again. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. <laughs> Possible deniability. <laughs> the elves are slightly different in this version than they were in Lords and Ladies. For one thing, there were a lot more of them in that book because that was more about a almost an alien invasion story. Whereas this is, I think, a more traditional fairy tale setup. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting that you say that because when Mystic started warning of an incursion, I thought we'd get something more in the veins of like an alien invasion story. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see why. And we kind of do because Spell, you've heard of parallel universes, right? Yep. Uh, are these orthogonal? These are parasite universes. Ah, I see. <laughs> but also great use of orthogonal there. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Two of the Fiegel carry Tiffany to their home in an ancient burial mound to meet the Kelda, the matriarch of the clan. Along the way, they're attacked by a pack of gravehounds, but Tiffany turns their magical anatomy against them by baiting the hounds into a patch of more stable reality. Hey kids, time for the lesson of the day! Sing along at home! Don't jump around if your teeth are razor blades! <laughs> It's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> one we can all take home. <laughs> That's one to grow on. This is definitely like a bit of a gruesome little scene in this book. Yeah. Like, yikes. Indeed. Maybe it's because the Gravehounds feel so much more like monstrous to me than the idea of a headless horseman. I think this works much better at establishing like dream nightmare danger kind of thing that this book is going for. Mm-hmm. Although I think it's probably worth pointing out that all three of these entities are like known mythic figures, especially in the British Isles. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because the Headless Horseman is actually from the United States, uh, Sleepy, Sleepy Hollow, New York. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. <laughs> Good on you for catching me. You can stop typing that YouTube comment now. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that just means more engagement. Indeed. Yeah boost the numbers and maybe it's because of where i've been at lately i've been reading a lot of stuff that has just like hints of kind of like eldritch and knowable horrors in them that the gravehounds feel like it's like uh, the thing that was once a deer kind of horror where it's familiar but it's just slightly wrong in a horrifying way mm -hmm. indeed Soon after Tiffany arrives at the Fiegel's home, she learns about Fiegel life and how they've been protecting the sheep in her grandmother's memory before she's brought to meet with the Kelda, mother to most of the clan. The Kelda is about to pass away, which, for the Fiegels, isn't so bad. They believe that the Discworld is their Valhalla, so when one of them dies here, it just means they have to go back to the land of the living. But before the Kelda can go, she makes Tiffany the temporary new Kelda of the clan and charges her with keeping them safe, which irritates the Kelda's daughter, Fionn, but the old Fiegel insists. Definitely, like, really making clear that like, the Fiegels are the Smurfs. It's just, like, lots of boys and one daughter. <laughs> I'm so sad that I just straight up did not pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing about the Discworld books is there's usually so many like pop culture references in them that I think it's very, very normal if you just miss like a whole handful. Yeah. Also, when was the last time the Smurfs were relevant? I don't know. They were, I don't think it was during my lifetime. <laughs> they did have like live action movies come out in the 21st century, definitely. I think after 2010, but like I could not tell you a single thing about them. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> I wonder if you can melt the Fiegels down into gold. Can can you do that with the Smurfs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, like, huh. that was the thing with uh, the villain of that series, who I want to say was named Gargamel or something. He, like, he wanted to capture the Smurfs to turn them into gold. <laughs> okay. That was Wild. a weird show. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have not seen it, but I like just that premise is weird. Indeed. Everything I learn about the Smurfs makes me realize how little I know about the Smurfs. <laughs> Around this time, Tiffany also thinks about a gift that she gave to Granny Aching, a porcelain figurine of a shepherdess with an elaborate, impractical outfit. Tiffany feels guilty about that gift because it's almost the opposite of what a real shepherd is like, and she worries that her granny saw it as an insult. Tiffany also thinks a bit about the Jolly Sailor tobacco that Granny Aching enjoyed and how its label fueled her imagination about the sea. This was kind of an important piece of uh, world building to me because let me know that there were oceans in this place. <laughs> uh, which I was like, this seems fairly pastoral. Does it go on forever? Mm -hmm. It does kind of have like a, a fantastical, like endless feeling to it. 
I think also that's definitely how it feels to grow up in a chalk area. When all you know is the flat green fields, they seem to go on forever. But yeah, the Discworld is like a whole planet. So it is a, so it is a literal disc then. Oh, yes. The oceans are at the edge of the disc. The water continuously falls off of it, but like evaporates and gets rained back down in. That makes sense. I like that. I probably should have explained that. It's a giant disc on the backs of four elephants who are all standing on a tremendous turtle as it swims through space. I feel like I've heard that one before. Something I know, I guess. Oh yeah, it's a common like idea of the shape of the world in like a lot of ancient mythology. I think the elephant thing specifically points it towards like the Indian subcontinent more than anything. But yeah. It's definitely like not talked about in this book as much as it is in some of the others. So I think it's a very easy to detail to miss yeah. in this one. I think that definitely speaks to not needing to know some things like about the way the universe works, right? Is like like if you picked a random person off the street, what's the likelihood they would be able to name all the types of quarks, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether the planet is flat or round, like it will not really affect life for working class people on it more or less mm-hmm. indeed yeah especially for a nine-year-old child and especially with the quality of education we saw earlier yeah maybe this is a little real and i think a lot of this has to do with the point i i am at in my life right now where you know i'm hitting a point where grandparents are passing away um and i very much get how much tiffany has this uh, regret and this like pain that's attached to granny aching about this interaction that she thought was very very innocent at the time and you know especially considering that she feels like she hasn't really mourned for granny aching yet because just the world continued on and that's just like a very real thing for a child to be going through especially when you know you're still learning about life and then death is introduced and you know i appreciate that this book goes there with that i appreciate that it's willing to talk about um how tiffany's dealing with losing somebody who's obviously so important to her but also how their relationship was by most people's standards strange there's a part in here where the Fiegel laws mean that Tiffany, as the new Kelda, has to pick one of the Fiegels to marry, uh, but she figures out a way around that by setting the date at basically the end of time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good old loophole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that she figured a way out around it. It's another instance of her conning and ingenuity, but also just like, why even bring up the prospect of, like, her getting married? She's nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels like it was just a situation for us to try to see that, you know, Tiffany's smarter than the average mm-hmm. bear. I don't know if it necessarily needed to be, like, child marriage, but, you know. The whole bit with the Kelda and the, like, rites of passage stuff, it it feels like a kind a slightly unnecessary digression to me. I would I would agree with that a bit, but I did enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It did serve a purpose in the narrative. It like gave her a conflict to resolve more quickly than the greater one, so we could see her like competence and the general attitude that serves her well. The rest of the story. Yeah, I think it's got a bit of like good world building detail and a bit of like good character detail in there, but because it kind of feels like her interactions with Fiona are never resolved it feels a little out of place because it feels like it's set up to be way more important than it is now it's time for tiffany to find her way to fairyland the toad doesn't know how to get there and the fecals won't explain how to do it and she has to earn respect as both the kelda and the witch of the chalk as she figures it out the fecals also explain that they used to live in the fey realm and would plunder other worlds for the queen. But they rejected her rule and also were kicked out for being drunk and disorderly. And now they live in a couple universes, primarily the Discworld. It, it is kind of fun that, that they were kicked out of Fairyland. 
It was. <laughs> Just too mischievous to deal with. <laughs> it's like, ugh, it'll be somebody else's problem. Through clear thinking and determination, Tiffany finds the way into the Fey Realm, a cold, monochromatic place where the textures load slowly. The Fairy Queen needs to upgrade her graphics card. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very like Silent Hill. It was really interesting because that is like, even with, you know, the the scary fair folk, it wasn't what I expected for a fairy world to look like. I was expecting, you know, colors that are so captivating that they could be an actual prison or that sort of a thing. Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think that there's like some things along those lines in other books. Also, like, you think I was joking about the textures not loading in. No, Terry Pratchett was like a fan of video games. Oh. <laughs> One of his most famous non-Discworld quotes is about Doom. It is so weird to think about that the, the author of this has played Doom. Oh yeah, no, he played. He probably took <laughs> breaks writing this book to play Doom. Wow, I swear I'm not kidding. Yeah, because it's Terry Pratchett right, who wrote. Well, he his computer setup was he had four monitors, right? Six. Six monitors. That's so many. <laughs> I know, right? Like, better have like a dedicated Doom machine if he's got that many monitors going. Yeah, that quote I was talking about is uh, for centuries humans have tried to ward off demons through things like prayer and fasting and ritual cleansing. Until the 90s, nobody tried a double-barreled shotgun, and it seems to work better than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a little detail later um, about the queen and the king's relationship. Um, and it feels like this would make sense if the queen's like really focusing her attention on building like her own little private world and mm. she's like well the rest of it doesn't really matter because i care about who's immediately like within my circle and everything else can be damned hi folks so right about here a spell had a technical issue so liz and i finished the conversation and spell recorded some extra bits that i'll probably edit in so so thank you for your patience in the fairy world, Tiffany and the Feagles are attacked by various creatures sent by the Queen. But the Feagles can outfight most anything. Of course, their fighting skill doesn't really help when Tiffany accidentally steps into the trap of a drome, a creature that ensnares people in dreams. The dromes are a really, really interesting monster because they feel like they can kind of be anything. But I especially like how them and their abilities come to play within the book. Because um, in this first instance, Tiffany basically gets pulled into a dream version of back home. And so she just kind of assumes she's back home. And she can feel that something's a little off, but it's not apparently obvious to her what it is. And it feels like it has got a good bit of horror in there. Like what I said earlier, you know, the deer that is not a deer. It's like it's home that is not home especially with the mother creature that exists in this. And so it feels both really interesting as like, you know, dipping in its toes into the horror, but also as a setup for the more fantasy-based stuff later. After escaping the drome, Tiffany hears the sound of someone approaching and thinks it's the queen coming after her. But in fact, it's the Baron's vanished son, Roland. When she tries to confront the boy about what happened to him, he runs away, leading her directly into another drome. The dream it presents her here is a magnificent party with a variety of tempting treats, but she figures out the drome's trick and manages to free both Roland and herself. I was frankly, like, super caught off guard when Roland showed up because I just <laughs> assumed that you know, oh, he died off screen. It was just like a little bit detail. It was never going to be relevant to the rest of the book. And then I, it happened and I was like, oh, well, yeah. If, like, if you're going to mention it, you might as well take advantage of, you know, this detail. But the end of the party scene is one of the moments where I realized, I think I was probably way too young to read this book when I read it. <laughs> because I don't think child me would have had the understanding of it that i have now to be okay with it perhaps although i think that we forget that there's a lot of like violence in a lot of kids books mm -hmm. yeah i just feel like the information's so unclear to the reader um up to that point that it's like 
I think child me would have probably just taken it at face of value that, you know, Tiffany just cuts the dream Roland's head off. So Roland tells Tiffany about what it's been like living in the fairy realm. And she tells him that it's been about a year since he was taken. Notably, at one point, Roland says death to witches, which I briefly thought was him trying to enforce his father's ban. But of course, the Baron didn't do that until after Roland vanished. Uh, so my theory is that it must be something the Queen told him to do. Mm -hmm. That would make a lot of sense because, you know, the Queen is obviously not going to be really be friends with witches. So if she wants to keep her world under her control, then she's got to make sure that the more autonomous beings within her sphere are going to avoid the things that might compromise that. Eventually, Tiffany and Roland find their way to another dream, one which is apparently used as a kind of public square, and Tiffany hears the wail of Wentworth whining for candy. She eventually finds him amid a mountain of confections, being unintentionally tortured by indecision. <laughs> I feel that. This is where the Queen makes her appearance. She is extremely polite and condescending to Tiffany, entrancing the young witch with cordiality and glamour until Tiffany realizes what's happening and antagonizes the queen until she loses concentration before smacking her with the frying pan. <laughs> she grabs Wentworth and starts to flee, but then realizes that the queen has trapped the feagles and she gets Roland to free them. I think this scene does a really good job at showing how like intelligent and witch-like that Tiffany really is, you know, because... Tiffany's really, never really been around other witches and as explicitly as some of the other characters have been in the Discworld books. But here, she's like, you know, you could change the names and say that this is a younger Granny Weatherwax, and I don't think anybody <laughs> yeah. would disbelieve you. Yeah, you're not wrong. Also, I've been listening to a fair amount of the Tolkien Professor podcast, mm -hmm. and he talks occasionally about... Uh, condescension and how it's not presented as inherently bad in those books mm -hmm. uh, when someone of a higher class condescends to someone lower in Tolkien's work as well as in the like folk tales that, that Tolkien was drawing from mm -hmm. it's an act of humility and charity basically hmm. that's not how Pratchett presents it here yeah I I think that shows a, a very like intentional shift and how that understanding probably worked, you know, that, hey, just because you think you're smarter or, you know, more well-off than somebody else, you probably shouldn't talk to them like that. It's not a great move. Yeah. <laughs> and I think especially in a book for children, you know, that's going to be something a lot of kids can really relate to because most kids are talked down to by adults. Yeah, that's a good point. The Feagles fight off the other elves and dream creatures, and Roland gets knocked unconscious. The Queen vanishes, but soon sends a host of nightmares to attack the humans and Feagles. But Tiffany directs the Wee Men toward another drome, and wills it to put them into one of her dreams, specifically one inspired by the packets of Jolly Sailor tobacco. <laughs> yeah, this is a really like ingenious solution for Tiffany to come across. And it feels, you know, there's the, like, narrative role of threes, um, that things in threes just have, like, a nice rhythm to them. And so the first instance of getting stuck in the drum, it's her at home, and it's very horrific. And then they're, uh, is it, then they're at the party? Yes. Okay. Although the rule of threes is kind of messed up because mm -hmm. the, like, town square thing is also, like, a drum dream. Yeah, and it's just kind of like a building off of that. So you have these, like this set of three where Tiffany does not necessarily have agency in any of those situations. And then she like breaks it and she figures out how to use the situation to her advantage. Hmm, definitely. They navigate the dream the way Tiffany always does by making their way to the lighthouse. But the queen assaults them again by twisting the dreamscape. Tiffany gives Wentworth to the Feagles and manages to rescue Roland, emerging back in the real world. But the Queen is waiting for her, and she collapses the doorway back to Fairyland. At this point, Tiffany's kind of having a minor crisis inside where she's kind of wondering if she did the right thing. And even if, you know, she did the right thing by saving Roland instead of dying trying to save Wentworth, you know, other people are not going to necessarily see that as the right thing. Like, her parents are still going to be devastated either way. Um, yeah. And 
it's a real like emotional moment and you know it's it landed very well great job the queen returns to her glamorous condescension explaining how it's not really tiffany's fault that she's so selfish and heartless and also revealing that she and the rest of the elves are coming to live on the chalk which tiffany realizes will kill the land she responds by connecting to the very heart of the region and to the memory of her grandmother who appears to her wearing the same ridiculous ornamental dress as on the figurine. <laughs> yeah, n there's not a lot of like words here to say explicitly, you know, what this means for Tiffany, but I appreciate the bit of closure that I'm sure it gives her. Even after Granny Eking's spirit drives out the rest of Fairyland, the queen is still here. Until the Feagles arrive, with Wentworth safe in tow, the Queen attempts to thwart them by conjuring a number of lawyers, but the Toad steps up to act as their defense, having been a lawyer himself before helping a princess sue of her fairy godmother. <laughs> this gives me, like, the biggest Shrek vibes. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah, it's just, you know, throwing it out there. <laughs> In the end, it comes down to just Tiffany and the Queen. While the Queen has mastered the power of dreams, Tiffany realizes her own connection to the waking world and overpowers the Queen through sheer force of reality. I like how the magic works here on Tiffany's part because, you know, she very obviously doesn't have any explicit magical training. And so it's just kind of an unknowable power. You know, it's not very well described. It's just a thing she feels and puts out there. As the Feagles depart to spend some of the gold they plundered from the dream world, Tiffany spots a number of shapes flying in from the mountains. These turn out to be Miss Tick, along with Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, two highly respected witches. The three of them give Tiffany acknowledgement and respect for defeating the Queen on her own, along with some tips and explanations about being a witch, and a special gift. Since witches need a pointy hat, but wearing one in the village would be trouble, Granny makes Tiffany a hat that is invisible and intangible, but nonetheless serves as a badge of office as the official witch of the chalk. Yeah, this is a sweet little moment, and it feels like a good setup for, you know, the world around Tiffany to change. After the other witches depart, Tiffany's father finds her along with Roland and Wentworth. She lets the Baron figure out an explanation that makes sense to him. The Queen was some mad woman who kidnapped the three children, and clearly his son rescued the younger two. When Roland visits Tiffany a few days later, he says that he tried to explain what really happened, but she says it doesn't really matter so long as he remembers to be a good Baron when he grows up, because this is her land. So that was the Wee Free Men, what did you think? This book is a lot of fun, and I think especially for a younger audience, it serves as a really good introduction to the Discworld because you don't need to necessarily know all the references in order to get it. You know, everybody and everything feels very fleshed out and independent as it stands to this book. I do think that the way that Roland acts at the end, it like made him a lot less of a wiener. Mm-hmm. Or at least a little bit more nuanced, because he says they like did try to explain what actually happened. But also he's a little nervous about Tiffany actually revealing, getting anyone to believe the truth, because he kind of likes being the hero. Yeah, and we don't necessarily get like a whole lot of time with Roland, so he doesn't necessarily get a real arc throughout the book. But I do feel like there was potential there for him to at least grow from how we see his father into being mm -hmm. more understanding of the people under his purview. Even the his father did understand a lot because, like, you'll recall there was a scene where uh, Roland's father like had a prized dog that killed a sheep, and the law of the land is that a dog who kills a sheep goes is put to death. But Granny Aching uh, manages to save the dog by putting him in a room with a lamb and the lamb's mom so when the dog tried to attack the lamb the mom just beat the dog up mm -hmm. and that i think reminded the baron as well that you know the people of this land are not entirely passive he may think of them as sheep but like even sheep will 
fight for their families and for what they have. Yeah, I think you're totally there. I think part of it is it kind of seems like with the Baron and Granny aching, Granny aching serves to kind of keep him in check. And because she's now gone by the time the book happens, you know, he is starting to kind of grow back into his old ways. A little bit, yeah. He's rudderless without the guiding force of an official witch. Yeah. And while it makes a lot of sense from how the Discworld portrays witches for Tiffany to, you know, do the work without the reward, it does kind of feel like maybe the reward of Roland knowing would have been a nice plus. I mean, like, Roland did know, does know. Yeah, I guess, like, uh, you know, being more upfront about that to her and less defensive, you know, and trying to protect himself. Yeah. So, some other thoughts. Uh, question for you. Is this book a Harry Potter parody? Just, like, acknowledging the elephant in the room. I can see maybe a situation where elements of Harry Potter would have been, like, pulled into this. But it feels like those ideas go through so much of a shift to get to what this book is that I don't necessarily think you can say that. Definitely, I agree. Like, mm -hmm. beyond how Tiffany imagines a magic school, there's basically no parallels to the series. That said, the first Harry Potter book came out six years before this one, so it's almost certain that the series was the impetus behind writing this story. I don't know if it was Terry Pratchett himself or, like, his publisher was like, hey, like, stories about young people learning magic are popular, so we could get several dumpsters full of money. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, I don't really get the sense this was a cash grab on Terry Pratchett's part. There's just so many differences, like you said. I think that if Harry Potter had never existed, we might have still gotten Tiffany Aiken. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of this book that feels like it just belongs in the Discworld. But it definitely you can kind of see with the timing where maybe some external forces kind of shaped what this book ultimately ended up being. Any other thoughts? I really enjoyed Granny Aiken as the presence that sort of looms over the entire story because she's very much at the heart of Tiffany's thoughts. Yeah, and especially because, you know, Granny Aiken was kind of a force of nature within the chalk. And, you know, even after she's gone, people still leave packets of tobacco out for her at her house, you know? And Tiffany says it multiple times throughout the books that just because you learn how the magic is done doesn't mean it's not magic. That it both feels like it increases Granny Aching's presence for, you know, her relationship with the Neck McFeagal to be the reason that all these things that people kind of treat as, as magic after her passing are, you know, her still being around. While it also, you know, it kind of is her still being around, you know, because she built those relationships and basically set it up so that the chalk would be protected once she was gone. Yeah. And of course, Granny Aking isn't really gone because she's still so tied to the land. Although I think maybe she did kind of depart finally at the end because, uh, let's be real, Granny Aking was the witch of the chalk and yeah. now Tiffany is. So Granny Aking can kind of move on. Yeah. The ending, I think, is definitely vague on what ultimately happens to Granny Aking and really like the extent of what her presence was. And I think that works, you know, because, you know, when you lose somebody, it's not like they're gone. Even though they're not there, everything they taught you, every moment you had together, it's still there influencing who you are. Yeah. So it feels very appropriate for what is kind of a narrative about a child working through the grief of a grandparent. Yeah. Now, speaking of grief and losing... Did you notice what recurring character is missing from this story? Um, I don't know. My brain is kind of stuck on the librarian. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. But this is the first and only Discworld novel that doesn't have a cameo from death. Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. You know, he's a bit of a harder one to explain because like, in the other Discworld books, you can just put the font in or whatever and people know, oh, it's death and this is why death is here. But this one, I think you probably might need to provide a little bit more context for that. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Although I think if death had made an appearance, he might have shown up near the end when Granny Aching departs and like mm -hmm. talk with Tiffany a little bit about her presence in the chalk. Yeah. As just like, 
her still being alive and with her. Yeah, I think that would make sense. Or perhaps, like, she could have met him when she found Granny Aching's body. Mm -hmm. Because it was mentioned that Tiffany was the one who discovered Granny when she had passed. Yeah, like, she just sees this individual, but she doesn't, like, fully comprehend. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't, like, really picked up on it while reading, but, like, looking back, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is harder to notice the absence of something than the pre- than its presence, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we touched on it a little bit, but I enjoy how when Granny Aching appeared to Tiffany, she was wearing the dress from the figurine to demonstrate that she did love that figurine because she loved Tiffany. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this very, like, subtle, unspoken thing. But, you know, you can tell that it means a lot. I just enjoyed the image of just, like, a tough old lady wearing the uh, frilly blue outfit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and probably, like, delighting in it. Yeah. So, for each book, I try to find a thesis. And this time it's a little nebulous, but if you're coming at this from what the story is trying to teach the kids who would be reading it, I'd say it's that... You won't always feel or think in a way that fits what you have been presented as being virtuous or normal, but that doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. And you're still capable of doing great and important things. Yeah, I think that's totally it. Especially because a lot of kids in books kind of get written off as like snot-nosed brats or like perfect innocent little angels. But Tiffany's really complicated you know she obviously cares a lot and she wants to do the right thing but she also doesn't necessarily care for Wentworth in the way that she feels she should and she reacts in ways to things that maybe seem out of sorts to what other kids her age are doing but you know she's still valuable and and you know a good character and loved yeah but like regardless of that I think she's also one of the best, like, most complicated protagonists we've had in the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for sure, especially because, you know, some of these books lean much harder into the comedy angle than others. And a lot of those ones, it's really the main characters just there to get us from joke to joke, which is fine. But I think Tiffany being this complicated, you know, especially as a kid, I think that means a lot. So, welcome back. After some technical issues, I decided to finish out the rest of Spell's conversation. Just us. Indeed. So, Spell, you cut out, I think, around when Tiffany is in the fairy world. Right. And what I really wanted to say here is just that it what it really um, reminded me of was the uh, story A Wrinkle in Time. Mm, yeah. Uh, sort of like the surreal dreamlike aspects of it, the literal dream sequences, that sort of a thing. Uh, you know, getting trapped that's sort of the aesthetic that really came to me um, during this entire section in the Fey Realm. Also, what did you think of Roland as a character? I wasn't really sure what to think, honestly. Um, just because we get such an odd introduction, mm-hmm. so to speak. Immediately, death to witches. And then we also we met the Queen. What did you think of her? I am such a sucker for fairy. They're so cool. It really sold me on the whole, like, this is the the trickster realm. This is where, you know, you have to be very careful. And I I love it when the counter to fairy is just to be incredibly blunt and hit them with a frying pan. (laughs) Yeah, because she's a creature of dreams, more or less. And there's nothing more solid than a... I, frying pan to the face. Also, when we get to, to the climax, which occupies all like a large part of the book, right? Like I was thinking about this later afterwards. It does take up a huge amount of the story, like at least a third. But do you think it like felt too long? I don't think it felt too long. Um, I think the, I enjoyed the pacing. I, I feel like it was fairly perfect in terms of duration. I agree, because, like, while if I was, like, adapting the story to, like, a movie or something, I probably would have trimmed down the climax, like, so that only, uh, like, Tiffany only has to defeat the queen, like, maybe three times. <laughs> it still summed up a lot of, like, witchcraftery, being steadfast and determined and connected to the world. Yeah, exactly. And also, the very end, with Tiffany being pretty much commanding even as a nine-year-old girl 
any thoughts on her character i just i just think it was really cool you know you've got this child who is very much not acting like a child um which is i really enjoy the trope where like everything is revolving around like this one hyper competent child and i'm such a sucker for that (laughs) and i think one of the overall themes of the story is that this is not necessarily expected child's behavior, but kids are not just what we expect them to be, right? Yeah. The queen wants the children to be, like, running and jumping and playing. And that is pointedly not what her opposition is doing. Yeah, like, none of the children that have entered her realm are doing that. Roland is being kind of a brat, although he gets better at the end. Indeed. A little bit. Uh, Wentworth is a major brat whining for sweets. And Tiffany's also being kind of a rat, but she's turning that into a weapon. <laughs> exactly. I, I just, I love it a lot. Oh, and also, what did you think of the scene where you met uh, some more witches that came in? Honestly, I was just a little bit confused. Um, mm. Just, I wasn't expecting more witches to show up other than the ones we'd already seen, so... I surmised that they were probably characters that had shown up in other works. However, it was still a little bit confusing to me. You were just surprised to see new characters or that you felt that this this scene did not work without the prior understanding of who they were? I feel like the scene worked. I was just surprised, especially for like at new character introductions, especially so late in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was It wasn't something I was expecting. Which doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Yeah, and you're entirely right. They are characters from previous stories. But but as long as the reading this book by itself worked, even not having met them before, yeah, I'd call that still a success. I, I am I am excited to see like what their their overall deal is, uh, you know, and perhaps a work that's more centered on them if there are any. Oh yes. Also, going on some broader strokes. One other thing. It was an interesting moment where one of the Nack McFeagle, Mad Hamish, he is sort of the like pilot scout for the other Feagles, and he tends to land by just jumping off of his trained vulture. <laughs> what did you think of at the ending where Tiffany suggested he get a parachute and he ends up making one out of her underpants? It, it was... I wasn't exactly a big fan of that. <laughs> no, it was a little weird not entirely sure what the point of that scene was except to show that she's like willing to give up whatever things she has for the sake of what people need yeah it reminds me of the marriage uh scene Mm -hmm. it felt weird and maybe not entirely necessary in the same way that that scene did yeah she does uh, succeed at a lot of places by being willing to give things up which is weird considering like how she ultimately wins is by being selfish yeah, exactly. Although, like, her definition of ownership is more about responsibility for things around her. Also, one other thing. You mentioned wanting to know a little bit more about magic in this world. Yeah. Not to bring in a biographical reading, but Terry Pratchett got his more or less official writing start as a journalist for a power company specializing in nuclear reactors. And so magic on the Discworld is very much... Uh, coded as radiation that makes so much sense especially with like the geological aspects um oh yeah well you know it's like in some places uh you, you got to be careful with your basement or whatever because if you dig into granite you know you're gonna run into something radioactive that sooner or later that sort of thing huh see i was trying to look stuff up about this and just couldn't find anything that made sense to me so i'm glad that that makes it makes sense to you. <laughs> it's it's only something I know about just because I grew up in an area with granite bedrock, so we had to be super careful about the like potentially getting raid on in the basement. Oh dear. Oh yeah. And so what they talked about with Liz, I want to get your thoughts on. So there's a, a character that shows up in every Discworld book except this one, and I want to know your theory on what the Grim Reaper in this world is like. Okay, I can cheat a little because I've heard that they're an incredibly interesting character uh, and that every time I hear about like this setting, uh, death comes up. Yeah. But I, I'm going to guess they're surprisingly chill for the you know incarnation of things not being alive anymore. 
<laughs> I'm excited to meet them, which is an odd thing to say. <laughs> that can be arranged. <laughs> All right, so we're just about at the end. So I want to thank both of my co-hosts for talking with me. Give thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music and all of you for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to support us, you can share the episode on various social medias. Or, if you choose, you can support us on Patreon. And each episode, we give a shout-out to one of our randomly selected patrons. This month, we give a thank you to Robin. And, of course, we close out each episode with a reading of the favorite footnote. People say things like, listen to your heart, but witches learn to listen to other things, too. It's amazing what your kidneys can tell you. That does it for this month. Join us again next time for Monstrous Regiment. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.